we are resilient. And I think that the oath that I took, that you took, uh, we, we take that serious uh, to protect and serve. So resilient because through every adversity and every challenge we've ever had through the 80s, through the 90s, and today, we have come back stronger and wiser and more focused. And I think it's because of the people. I think it's because of the love of the agency and the people who work for the agency. Welcome to The Justice Beat, where we sit down with top leadership to chat about the department's mission, activities, and priorities. Today, we welcome the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, or as you probably know them, ATF. This law enforcement agency is responsible for investigating and preventing federal offenses related to firearms and explosives, acts of arson and bombings, and illegal trafficking of alcohol and tobacco products. ATF also regulates the sale, possession, and transportation of firearms, ammunition, and explosives in interstate commerce. In today's episode, we have a conversation with Regina Lombardo, the acting director of ATF, about the Bureau's history, the role ATF plays in not only law enforcement, but also regulation, and how technology has changed the way ATF completes their mission. Acting Director Lombardo also shares her personal experience serving as the special agent in charge of ATF's Tampa Field Division during the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting. Tom Chittam, Assistant Director of Field Operations for ATF, leads the conversation. Here's Tom. The mission of the Department of Justice is to prevent crime and enforce the law, and today we will talk about how ATF contributes to that mission, whether through solving bombings or arsons or using state-of-the-art crime gun intelligence tools to stop the next shooting. I'm Tom Chittam, the Assistant Director of Field Operations at ATF. With us today is Regina Lombardo. She's the head of ATF. A.D. Lombardo has been a special agent with the ATF for 30 years. She is the first female to lead the ATF. Uh, She is the highest ranking female in federal law enforcement today. And perhaps most importantly, she was one of my first supervisors when I came to ATF over 20 years ago. Uh, Welcome. Oh, thank you, Tom. Uh, Great introduction. Uh, Not quite 30 years. I'm coming up on 30 years soon. So it's been uh, quite interesting to be even sitting in this seat, let alone uh, starting back in the early 90s. Time certainly flies. We have a lot to talk about today, but first I'd like to start by asking you two personal questions. First, why did you choose a career with ATF 30 years ago or almost? And uh, what have been some of the most memorable moments you have had as an ATF agent? Well, I'm going to take a deep breath on that. I think the first uh, time I was asked that question, I had to really give it some thought because my path was what I would consider pretty untraditional. Uh, came from a, a large Italian family, ran some businesses, uh, and it was something that I never even dreamed about. But uh, just like many people that you know come into our lives, I uh, had a few good mentors that uh, 
said, you know, why don't you consider uh, going back, getting your degree, and uh, perhaps even pursuing a different career other than what I was doing. So I think it was really the mentors in my life that opened me up to who ATF was or what ATF did. Uh, I was fortunate to be awarded an internship at the Federal Law Enforcement Training uh, Facility, and I think it was really there that I saw uh, for the first time uh, who ATF was, and it was really their reputation and what I saw in who they were. by the instructors that said, hey, those are ATF agents. And I, right there, I said, I want to be one of those. I want to be an ATF agent. And I don't know if it was the connection that I felt with the people, uh, the humility that I saw, the esprit de corps, uh, but they always were uh, together uh, fighting hard to get through the academy. It's really tough. So I think it was really their mission to, not a lot of women at the time, uh, really was that focused on wanting to work bombs and guns and explosive cases. So I think it was the challenge, too, to see if uh, that's something I can do. And so I have to say, it was I realized there was more to life than you know bacon bread and slicing salami. And I thought I can maybe maybe take a shot at this, right? And you asked me the most memorable, which brings such a smile to my face because you know uh, memorable is you know I want to keep it to something that was always brought a smile to my face, and that has to be the times of my early days in in, in Miami when when we worked together, uh, and even the years before it was you know I was you know what I, we call running and gunning right. I was a street agent for. 10 years, had a lot of fun, did a lot of undercover work. South Beach, Miami was just, I rode a Harley. It was, it was fun. It was great. I made so many cases. I pretty much camped out at the U.S. Attorney's office and it was, uh, you know, it was one case after another, after another. And I think that that was probably my most memorable times. Uh, and then of course, you know, became a supervisor and ran a home invasion group, right? With 11 cops, uh, yourself, right? Those early days. And I think you could, you're smiling too because we worked around the clock at times and we worked so hard, but we laughed and we joked and we had fun. And I almost never felt like it was really working. And, you know, I had some ups uh, in my career. That was probably the most memorable because it was fun. And I think, uh, and my time in Canada too, but uh, I think that has to bring the biggest smile on my face. So that would be the most, most memorable. I spent a lot of time uh, thinking finally back to the good old days, and I really had a good time there. Thanks for sharing that. Welcome. Uh, So uh, speaking of history, um, ATF has an incredibly uh, interesting and unique history. Um, We've talked about it. uh, Our history and the the issues we deal with are tied to significant American events. Uh, Would you mind talking a little bit about uh, how ATF became the agency it is today? We have such a fascinating history that I don't think most uh, know uh, how far back we go back to the you know 1700s. But I think I know you are such a history buff, and you study ATF's history, and you study history, and you also are the one that does the tour for for many uh, VIPs that come to our beautiful building. So I think it, if you wouldn't mind, you could share some of the history of ATF that I know that you so passionately uh, speak about. Well, I have missed giving the tour lately. I I always do enjoy it. ATF's headquarters is a unique building in and of itself, but of course we have a lot of exhibits that are museum quality and tell an interesting tale. Some of the most notable events in American history also shaped ATF. Uh, Of course, prohibition and the rise of uh, organized crime leading to the first federal gun law, the National Firearms Act, and the political assassinations of the 60s leading to the Gun Control Act. 
And uh, each step of the way, as uh, the country pivoted, uh, it added a new dimension to ATF. And the interesting thing is when you look back at it, a lot of our history seems to be tied to revenue collection. But the reality is um, there was always an underlying current of violent crime, and that's where we are today. I think uh, for me, seeing the history evolve uh, from the different types of laws that were passed has shaped us, has shaped what we uh, bring to the American people. You know, we are one of the smaller uh, federal agencies, law enforcement agencies under the Department of Justice, but I think we have probably the most vital, vital missions, that's for sure. Uh, and we, we've talked about this many times. History does repeat itself. And so you see those those uh, continuing patterns. Um, talking about evolving missions, uh, in the last 20 years through deliberate training and tragically too much practice, uh, ATF has become adept at responding to critical incidents, uh, whether it's mass shooting scenes or uh, other mass casualty events like explosions. You were present for for the um, response to the Pulse nightclub shooting in Florida, where many people were killed by an active shooter. Uh, Would you mind talking a little bit about what ATF's role is in responding to events like that and some of your personal experiences with them? I think when we, uh, as an organization, really started to see mass shootings, uh, looking back at Columbine, right? Uh, at the time, we had not really saw the um, the type of um, magnitude, right? The types of weapons that were used. And looking back, we really pivoted as an organization and started to ask the question, how do we bring value to our state and local partners when there are when there is a mass shooting? How do we as ATF um, and help enhance the investigation? So I think we've, we've started to pivot uh, many years ago to a point where it's unfortunately become, uh, I don't want to say automatic, but we have created new uh, SOP, standard operating procedures for mass shootings. When we deploy, how often we uh, respond is really everyone. Uh, So with that, uh, when I was uh, fortunate to find my way back to the Sunshine State in Florida, and I was the special agent in charge of the Tampa Field Division, you quickly realize that uh, all their training and everything that you are are shared and talked about, uh, you may have to respond to a critical incident, but you never really think that it's going to actually happen so quickly on your watch, right? Uh, But that uh, day was very symbolic for me. It was June 12th. Um, It was very symbolic because at that time, uh, I was actually in uh, Fort Myers at my um, at my parents, my family, and we were actually doing a memorial service for the loss of my brother. And that day was the day that uh, it was seven in the morning, and I received a text message from our director at the time, Tom Brandon, that said, uh, "I need you to respond to Orlando." And at the time, now I'm looking at the phone and I'm getting the calls. My phone was blowing up, and it was very difficult because I was in a, a a family event that was very powerful to me. Uh, my brother was a, uh, had died of AIDS. He was an, an activist. Uh, so at the time, the Pulse was a gay nightclub. So there was all sorts of emotions floating around in my head. And I was very, feeling very heavy, uh, but I knew that I needed to be out there. And that's where I needed to, 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 to go. Uh, I, I can recall even hearing the name um, Omar Mateen coming across the, the uh, phone to me and writing down at the funeral home uh, that name. 
and the rest was so surreal. Uh, got back in the car and I drove thunderstorm and all almost five hours to, I arrived at a horrific scene. I didn't, didn't think that the scene would be um, as it was because I think there were several people who were running from uh, the gunfire that was able to leave the scene and there so you had bodies that were still laying in the street when I when I pulled in and parked and I remember trying to get out of my car quickly shutting the door and getting back in because I had to take a deep breath uh, and I just had memories dancing in my head of what I had just left uh, my family the you know all sorts of things happening inside my heart but I knew I just needed to get out there my role there was when I arrived was to partner with uh, you know Chief Mina and the FBI and Orlando Police Department and Florida Department of Law Enforcement and it was there that we show up with our mobile command vehicle and that vehicle is has an opportunity for us to work inside invite our partners in to strategize and to figure out um, all whatever whether it was the type of weapons that were used uh, the type if there was ballistics if there was firearms ammunition uh, left at the scene to do the uh, casings and the shell casings and what we call niben uh, role there we worked with our state and local partners pulling videos and at that time the scene was so big that we literally had to corner it off and ask for for all federal agencies that were out there to process the scene outside of the nightclub. So our role, I would say, uh, was to bring that aspect, and I would say stay tight with what we do well, stay focused on ATF's uh, role, which is to where was the source of the weapons? You know, how many weapons were used? It was very difficult because at the time, when uh, uh, when the suspect, when Omar Mateen was shot, he had they believed that he was lined with explosives because when he was killed and he lay back, there were uh, you know there was an actual it was an exit sign that laid on top of him, and they thought perhaps it was explosive, so we couldn't process the scene that quickly. That scene took about three weeks to even. Uh, become manageable. Uh, we were able to be on the ground with our state and local partners, with the FBI's uh, response team, their their um, evidence recovery team, and we stayed focused on uh, the firearms aspect as well. But we also shifted to whatever they needed, whether we had another threat that we had to deploy additional resources. And at that command center, you're making those decisions. You're meeting with your governors. You're meeting with your uh, state and local chiefs of police, county, mayors. And you're really trying to come up with one message as to how, uh, what firearms were used, were they lawfully purchased. You know, we have the White House uh, asking us uh, what type of ammunition was used. And those are reports. And I can remember, you know, you helped me at the time. You were in headquarters. And... You were helping me to write the reports that were needing to be filtered to the Department of Justice, which would ultimately go over to the White House. And so that's our role. You know, we, we need to be able to share that information and say, this is a type of weapon. This is a type of ammunition. This is where that person purchased the weapon. And, oh, are there any other additional members, associates that are uh, acquiring additional weapons? So those were all the leads that we were running around the clock, 24-7. I don't think I, uh, I think I didn't sleep for a 
probably about five days. Uh, and the press conference was probably one of my worst, I think. I was so uh, sleep deprived and tired. Uh, but I also knew that our mission was to be there and to bring value to those types of investigation. Be no better partner to the FBI if it's terrorist related. Be no better partner to the state and locals uh, for whatever that is. As we evolve from Pulse, that's our SOP. That's what we do around the country. Pulse took place in Orlando back, you know, years back where we are, we're just starting our uh, virtual response teams, right? Our virtual command posts, things that we were now doing automatic. Today, same. We do the same today. We perfect it. We're even getting a little bit more and more um, focused, I think, on how we're responding to critical incidents. That's a big uh, role for ATF. Um, and I know that you yourself have been a special agent in charge out in the field, have had to respond to critical incidents. Uh, so I, I think you can sympathize with the, where we were and where we are today. I remember when I was a young agent hearing one of the old timers just say that it was hard to imagine a serious violent crime that didn't involve shooting, burning, or blowing something up. Yeah. And so I think that that's part of the reason that ATF is so uh, frequently uh, called to respond to incidents like that. During uh, your comments, you mentioned uh, some unique tools that ATF has, and I think that's a good opportunity to transition to uh, talking about ATF's focus on crime gun intelligence and how it is revolutionizing the way that we, in law enforcement generally, uh, investigate gun crime. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about how ATF's Tracing Center, mm -hmm. our National Integrated Ballistic Information Network, or NIBIN, and our crime gun intelligence centers and other tools come together with our people, uh, not just to solve crimes, but yeah. to prevent future ones. So crime gun intelligence has been, has really revolutionized the way that we work. We have that unique capability of, of tracing weapons. And sometimes I have to go back to 101 of what that means, which is really identifying the last known purchaser of that firearm. So when we say tracing, we've been tracing for many, many years. We are the only agency that's our unique capability is to trace that weapon that's recovered in a crime. Firearm gets recovered in a crime, ATF recovers that information and we make model serial number. We take it back to where was that? Where did that last lawful purchase occur? Our crime gun intelligence centers are made up of the trace, the tracing of that weapon, which tells us the source, right? Uh, and now we've been doing that for years, but now we've evolved to National Integrated Ballistic Information Network. What's that? I always say it's a big, long word for ballistic imaging. You know, now we have the capabilities through technology of looking at a shell casing that we recover from a scene that is that is almost like a DNA thumbprint in that shell casing. It's There's one unique identifier on that shell casing that comes from a specific firearm. Now that we're able to revolutionize how we're looking at the data from the shell casings, the DNA, we would call it, the thumbprint, is to use that information now to connect shooting scenes. Uh, we have devices and technology that allows us to do that now. Uh, so the two main pillars, I always say the two main, main, main support pillars in our crime gun intelligence centers are tracing and NIBIN. Tracing tells us the source of the weapon, NIBIN tells us the shooter. Sometimes I refer to it as 
uh, tracing tells us the, you know, the birth of that firearm from cradle to grave, the birth and the death, and Nibin tells us the life of crime that it led, right? Uh, so those are the two main things that we talk about crime gun intelligence. Uh, all of that, all of that today is really what we're focusing on around the country. So police departments, state and local law enforcement or, uh, departments are asking ATF to partner, uh, to be able to 100% shell, shell collection from the field, looking at all of the data, taking those shells casings in, and to disrupt that shooting cycle. I know you oversaw uh, field operate, you oversee field operations, uh, firearms operations, really not even a uh, whole entire program is really under your leadership. And so I know you've made some recent changes to that with our National Correlation Center and how that works. Um, feel free to you know share a little bit about what direction you've led field operations in that, that role. Well, uh, like you and I have talked about a lot of times, it's not the hammer that builds the house, it's the carpenter. And so with all of these tools, um, they're useless to us unless we train people to use them. Of course, we've contributed a lot of effort to training our own agents on how to understand and use crime gun intelligence. We also put a lot of effort into training our external partners, making sure that people understand the real value of this. And I really do think it has revolutionized uh, gun crime investigation. Investigation. It allows us with greater precision to focus on those people that are pulling the triggers and the people that are arming them. Um, we talk a lot about ATF's law enforcement mission, but uh, I think it's important to remember that ATF also has a regulatory mission. Um, ATF, of course, regulates the uh, licensed uh, firearms industry and the explosives industry as well. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how important ATF's regulatory function is and how our industry operations investigators, or IOIs as we call them, uh, what role they play in our overall mission protecting the public? That is uh, one of the one of the evolving uh, positions in our organization, I believe. So we also, yes, we enforce the federal gun laws, but we also regulate. Uh, regulating, um, what I would say is looking at the firearms industry to make sure that they are in full compliance, uh, that they're in compliance with the law, with the Constitution. I look at them as partners as well, to look at the overall industry, because right now um, there is so much new technology and new uh, developments of types of weapons that we're seeing uh, in the streets every day. And so to always try to use the laws that we have in place, uh, there many of the laws are what, 80-year-old laws, and looking at how do they fit into new technology today. And looking at our cadre of uh, responsibility of the, the, the workforce that we have, the investigators, they are the ones that go out to the, we call them FFLs, Federal Firearms Licensed Dealers, to the gun shops, uh, and look to make sure that they are in compliance, that the person who is going in to buy that firearm has passed a background check, has been... <clears throat> Uh, uh, is a lawful purchase, uh, is, that is lawful purchase, that that person is not prohibited. So their role has really been 
to do the inspections, to mitigate the risks, um, to make sure they're in compliance. But we have really evolved their role as well because they're not just going into gun shops and inspecting or making sure that they are abiding by policies and, and law, a lawful purchase. They're investigators now. So they're looking with working with the special agents and responding to what we call FFL burglaries. When we have an, uh, a dealer that was, um, you know, broken into or, you know, we have quite a few of those around the country. They are the ones that go out there and make sure and work with our agents to look at their inventory to see what was stolen. And those are 100 percent response. Our team goes out every time we have a burglary or a robbery of a dealer or a gun shop. That's a potential firearm that's getting put on the street that could be used to kill a police officer or a child or an innocent victim. So we take that, uh, you know, seriously when we say 100% response to FFL burglaries and our IOIs, we call them, our industry investigators are part of that team that go out. Um, I always say that we need to make sure that we're uh, aligned uh, with our industry, listening to the, to listening to, to what their uh, issues are and challenges, very challenging. Very, very challenging, but I always say we focus on crime guns. Uh, and that is really what's made us, I think, even more today, very focused on our mission with the with the industry is we're looking to make sure that firearms do not go from lawful purchase to violent used into violent crimes or to unlawful being being used. Um, and I know that uh, you over you know oversee a lot of uh, you know around the field, the industry. I know you recently have had quite a few challenges yourself. Um, but there's anything that you're willing to share on, you know, some of the challenges that you've had to show that this is a big part of what ATF does. Well, I think you highlight it well uh, that, of course, we have a, a mission and an obligation to hold the industry to account to the law. But what we found is in many ways they can also be valuable partners to preventing gun crime, whether that's detecting um, uh, potential uh, firearms trafficking schemes and reporting those to us, whether it's taking voluntary steps to secure their inventory. And so I think we've seen that the, the industry can be a valuable partner uh, at preventing firearms trafficking. I have said at many um, uh, speaking engagements that I look at the firearms industry as the first line of defense against mm -hmm. gun crime. Yeah. Um, we, we talk about the importance of people, but there are um, uh, challenges with that, mm -hmm. right? The technology that ATF uses is great, but without capable, talented people, uh, it's just equipment. Can you talk about some of the challenges that ATF faces in recruiting, hiring, retaining, and promoting great employees? And what are some strategies for addressing that? The challenge uh, has been something unique, uh, in the, especially in the last probably few years, where we look, f uh, you know, we look to find the best, right? We look to hire, um, you know, those who, what I believe, has a sense of calling, right? Our strategy to recruit is looking at the the type of thinking today from millennials to the, the X gen, what Y generations, what motivates them, what inspires them, and motivates them to want to come into federal law enforcement or to be part of ATF. And I have to tap into that, uh, whether it's, hey, do you want to make an impact in you know your country uh, where it comes to regulating law or enforcing the gun laws? And so looking at 
trying to do a lot more social media, looking at new platforms to you know capture a bigger audience because I do think that there's a lot of talent out there. I believe in diversity, not black, white, male, female, but diversity in skill set. Looking to see what skills that are out there. Uh, do we look at people who have backgrounds in technology that worked for you know different corporations? Um, we have a, a hard time trying to uh, break away from you know change our culture from they have to have been in law enforcement or they have to have been a state and local police officer or federal or I think that we can integrate both. I think that looking for different types of skill sets around the country. Uh, so I started uh, what I call hashtag she is ATF. I'm very proud of that. It's a it's an opportunity for me to inspire and motivate young women to potentially want to take my spot one day. And that's that's ultimately uh, what I go around speaking about and mentoring is don't question your ability to lead, uh, especially young women who want to be part of it, but have a fear or have a little bit of resistance because they're not really sure what we do. And so I go out, sometimes uh, people don't realize I sit where I live and I try to recruit people that I come into walks of life that maybe have prior law enforcement. I tell them how great the mission that we have, what we do. So the challenge has is, is really been because every other agency is sort of in the, you know, we're all in that looking for the best we could possibly be to bring on. So for me, I have to f figure out what is it that makes us so unique and so, uh, hey, I want to be part of that like I did. What what spoke to me that made me say, I want to be part of them? Uh, so I think that getting out and showing who we are, what work we do, what type of people we are, we have a lot of humility, we possess amazing characteristics, uh, virtues. So that's the challenge. Uh, and then once we do bring them on, I look at how do we develop our leaders, identify talent like yourself early on and grow you, grow to be the next level of leadership. I always say we don't uh, develop leaders just to become good leaders. We develop good leaders to become a great organization. So that's the challenges have been recently, uh, the uh, obviously most recently with COVID not allowing us to do the, the volume of polygraphs or background investigations. So now we're looking to try to catch up a little bit, but uh, I'm, I'm trying my hardest to be that role model uh, for young women, young men, uh, and speak to them sometimes directly. Uh, I love going down to the academy and, and setting the tone of what it means to be an ATF agent or what it means to be an employee. I do all of the onboarding. I welcome them to ATF. I want them to hear from me. Uh, and that helps with retention. I hope that's kind of answered some of what you, you asked me. We have talked about the changing nature of criminal investigations. There was a time when you and I were new agents that an agent could work a case soup to nuts by his or herself. Um, but it has changed, and it really does require a team with a lot of people from different backgrounds and different skills, not just agents, but intelligence analysts, um, firearms uh, technology specialists. Um, and, and so our recruitment efforts uh, are much broader than they used to be. We talk a lot about ATF's firearms mission, and of course, it probably makes up the bulk of our focus. Uh, but we have a very significant critical role to play in arson and explosives investigations. Would you mind talking a little bit about ATF's uh, 
arson and explosives or A&E mission. Yes, our A&E mission, I have to say, is one of the soft spots. You're right. We do probably 80% of our work has been firearms. Uh, But even most recently, it's... Uh, it's definitely have uh, shifted. Uh, it's arsons right now, especially with the civil unrest. We've had close to, what, 900 arsons around the country. Uh, explosive cases, I think probably close to about 90. Uh, but uh, the arson uh, investigators, our certified fire investigators, you know, the, the best in the world. Uh, our explosives, our certified explosive specialists, best in the world, trained. Uh, they bring such a unique uh, capability to ATF. Uh, we enforce explosives and arson laws. And most of the time, uh, our agents are our, not just the agents, but the team is made up of chemists, um, engineers, uh, schematic drawers. It's a team that responds to, let's say, even dating back to the Oklahoma City bombing, right? We responded to that as a national response team. Still to this day, that team exists and it's even getting more focused, uh, highly trained, using more technology. And that's the teams we have across the country. We deploy when we have uh, a big explosive incident like World Trade Center, uh, let's say the most recent West West Texas fires, and not just the big scenes, but also some of the commercial fires. That's our jurisdiction. I don't think a a lot realize that. With the civil unrest, I think they played a key role, especially out in um, in St. Paul, where we had two national response teams deployed, uh, where our team went out after the civil unrest settled. We were able to bring in our investigators, and they are really sifting through the rubble sometimes, looking at where that fire started. We take, for instance, here in D.C., St. John's Church, where we had seven fires here in D.C., our team of investigators, national response team, they go in, they look at where the origin of that fire is, and now we are using technology to really, really drill down on who was at the scene, who, what phones were in that seat of the blast, uh, whether it's a vehicle or whether it was a, a police department. So there's lots of things that are that we're doing in the A&E world. Uh, our our, our cadre is highly trained, and I would say I want them to be the best trained that they could possibly be uh, in, in their craft, whether it's certified explosive specialist, certified fire investigator, and they're very protective of their work. Uh, but I think we are the best in the world at what we do when it comes to explosives. We partner so much with the FBI on their mission because they have a vital mission there. But if it's criminal, it's ATF. It's terrorist-related, it's the FBI. So many of those cases overlap. And that's where our relationship building and, and, and showing up at the scenes and, and really working through those are really what makes us uh, good partners. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't think I've ever seen our relationship uh, better with the FBI than it is now. Um, you, you've heard me say that uh, even after being an ATF agent for 20 years, I have never been more proud to say that than I have in the last few months. And part of it is because of our uh, response to the riots and national civil unrest. Um, uh, At the height of them, we were facing a significant number of commercial arsons, uh, gun store burglaries. Um, We tell people that ATF is not trained uh, or equipped for riot control, but we're uniquely capable of responding to crimes associated with those riots. Uh, Do you mind to to talk a little bit about how you think that may change uh, ATF? future in terms of dealing with um, all of the national unrest we've seen? 
Um, we've always maintained our role uh, when there was civil unrest in in other cities, not just during this time, uh, even Milwaukee a few years back, Baltimore not so long ago. But what we bring to um, the order that we bring is the investigative piece, the investigative piece of, of their fire, if their firearms were used during the civil unrest, uh, looking at prosecuting those who were unlawfully possessing those firearms or unlawfully acquired those firearms. Uh, I think for us uh, as an agency, this is really one of the times where we have been asked to, you know, stretch, really go out and uh, work with all federal, state, and local together. And we did. We have seen more uh, federal firearms license burglary hits those during that week, two weeks, um, the burglaries, the arsons, the explosives. We're going to continue to play, uh, you know, our part, which is to investigate, investigate those crimes. And that's what's really, really, uh, for me, uh, where we delivered, uh, I think, we were asked to probably deliver, uh, you know, additional special agents, additional analysts, additional uh, resources, and we did. Uh, looking forward, looking for the future, I think that's going to always be what we are going to be asked to do, which is firearm violations, explosives. That's all our core mission. It's all our core mission. Yeah. That was really, uh, uh, I have said that it was the largest critical incident response in ATF history. And uh, we talked earlier about how good we've gotten at responding to critical incidents, but that's usually only one or two at a time. This was really on all fronts across the country. And I think it illustrates um, the team approach. We have used a lot of digital forensics and technology specialists to pull out surveillance videos to hold people accountable for the the violent crimes they committed during these riots. And at this point, ATF has seen uh, well over 100 federal arrests for crimes that, that arose from those. Um, but we almost never do it alone. And ATF has uh, long been proud of our relationships with our law enforcement partners, especially at state and local level. Would you mind talking a little bit about some of the unique capabilities that we bring to support our state and local partners and some of the training that we offer? We, you and I grew up task force, right? Our whole, my whole life, I think my whole career has been uh, task force where we, uh, you know, worked every day side by side together with uh, our local partners. And, you know, we, we like to think that we um, offer them a unique cap opportunity to work together with us, but also offer them training too. We do all sorts of, not just law enforcement training, even our labs. We do serial number restoration training for them. We do our SRT teams, our special response team. We train with together. Um, our National Correlation Center now is training how do they correlate ballistics and, and imaging uh, to help them. I would say teach a man a fish, right? So I think we're pri we pride ourselves on, on our partnership. And, and I think what we have been told by our state and locals is uh, we ask them, how do we bring value? What do you need from ATF? And the, the number 99% of the time we hear we, we want NIBIN, National Integrated Ballistic Information, capabilities and tracing, NIBIN and tracing. Um, that has been uh, a key for us. I grew up task force, uh, so I'm a big proponent in 
bringing task force officers to work with ATF, or if not, and you want ATF agents to go to your office and work together in partnership, that's, I think, what we pride, as Tom Brandon said it best, you know, no better partner. We strive to be. That's still our mantra. We almost always do it better when we do it together. Yeah. Uh, speaking of partners, you mentioned, I think, in your intro that you had spent some time in Canada. Most of the time when we talk about partnership, it's with uh, federal, state, or local partners. Uh, but ATF also plays an important role with international partners. Would you mind talking a little bit about ATF's international mission and your own personal experience working uh, outside the United States? Uh, I bring a, that's another big smile on my face. I have to say, I after 14 years in the Miami field office, everybody thought I was crazy to want to go to Toronto, Canada. Uh, so I opened up our first office in Toronto. Uh, I have to say it was uh, pretty surreal. I worked uh, part of the embassy, but it was there that uh, I learned uh, how to work with being an ambassador uh, and be diplomatic, right? Do you learn, you, those are the skills that you learn, you are a guest in another country. So I quickly realized that the U.S. was uh, the number one source for Canadian firearms that were being recovered in crimes in Canada. And I wanted to be able to facilitate cross-border uh, partnerships, cross-border weapons enforcement opportunities or trafficking cases, uh, quickly set up what pretty much what we're doing today, which is our Crime Gun Intelligence Center, but I created that in another country. Uh, so my office was in Toronto, uh, the embassy was in Ottawa, and it was there that I created that um, standard operating procedure to be able to recover a firearm in, in a shooting in Toronto or in a, uh, a search warrant and trace that weapon back to the U.S. and then facilitate a cross-border uh, investigation. And that's basically the foundation and then lo and behold uh, a three to five year commitment uh, while I was there I got so involved and so entrenched and committed that uh, I wind up staying for seven and, and just it was really hard to uh, turn that corner and want to come back because I had such autonomy to build and grow and develop so I created a whole uh, SOP between how we uh, investigate crimes between two countries. And now what we're doing in Canada, uh, we don't have the same volume that we have in Mexico. Now we're doing a little bit even more in Mexico where we're, you know, operation southbound, which is what we're doing to help with the cutting down that pipeline of weapons being uh, used in crimes in Mexico, it's the cartels. Uh, so I got my experience there and I'm hoping that we can do a little bit more uh, south that we do in the north, but still the soft spot of my heart is uh, the time I spent in Canada. Yes. Um, at the start of 2020, uh, you and I talked about leading change, using this new decade to bring about important change and looking towards the future. But of course, we faced some challenges that we did not anticipate, right. like COVID. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about uh, how you uh, faced these challenges and what you think the future holds for ATF? I could say... Uh, never did I ever imagine when I said I would be leading change, taking this new position as the head of ATF. Um, I love change. I feel like I'm a change agent. Uh, I'm excited for the future, uh, looking at all sorts of new things that we're doing. I'm super, super excited about uh, the recruitment, bringing on new uh, workforce. Uh, and again, I take everything in a very holistic approach. And nothing is just one dimensional with me. I know you've worked with me for a long time, so I thrive on change. And, and it just it makes me just keep going. Yeah.
We um, didn't really miss a beat, I think, when uh, COVID hit. ATF pivoted. Uh, we continued to carry out our mission-critical functions and um, got a little bit better at working remotely. That allowed us, I think, to manage the significant uh, uh, increase in work that we faced during the riots. I think this is a good place to end, but before we go, I would like to ask if there is uh, one more thing you would like everyone else to know about ATF. Well, uh, I'll, I'll wrap it hard by saying um, we are resilient. And I think that the oath that I took, that you took, uh, we, we take that serious uh, to protect and serve. So resilient because through every adversity and every challenge we've ever had through the 80s, through the 90s, and today, we have come back stronger and wiser and more focused. And I think it's because of the people. I think it's because of the love of the agency and the people who work for the agency. So we are a resilient agency with a very vital mission. Director Lombardo, I appreciate you sharing, being so open. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it, time. ATF was created more than 100 years ago to serve as the federal agency responsible for investigating criminal activities and organizations. ATF is still upholding that mission today. Thank you to Acting Director Lombardo and Tom for sharing what ATF and DOJ are doing to make our neighborhoods safer. To find out more about the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, go to atf.gov. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram and look for the hashtag SheIsATF. Thank you for listening and please stay tuned for more from the Department of Justice. Visit justice.gov podcast to subscribe. The Justice Beat is produced by the Department of Justice's Office of Public Affairs. Find out more about the Justice Department at justice.gov.